Welcome to another episode of the Your Brain Uncovered podcast, where it is my job to interview pioneering scientists and authors to tease out some of their most fascinating work. We discuss neuroscience and psychology tools for everyday living. I'm Aya Torabin. I'm a translational neuroscience student and a researcher at University College London. Also, want to emphasize that this podcast is my personal goal of bringing zero cost to consumer information to the public, and separate from my other roles. Today's guest is Dr. Nancy Padilla Coriano. Dr. Padilla Coriano is a professor at the University of Florida, where she runs her own lab investigating the neural basis of social behaviors. Now, Dr. Padilla was selected as one of the L'Oreal for Women in Science 2020 Fellows and received the inaugural Henry Grass MD Rising Stars in Neuroscience Award. That was back in 2021. She's joining us today to help us break down how does our brain exactly allow us to navigate social spaces. Dr. Padilla, welcome to the show. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you so much for being here. So even if we're not aware of it, it seems very obvious now that the human brain's capacity for navigating social spaces is formidable. Um, So uh, what is it exactly that you're interested in uh, within that realm? Uh, What are you investigating? So I'm interested in understanding how the brain helps us navigate our social spaces. And that means like, helping us keep track of who's who in our environment and helping us decide how to behave depending on who who we're interacting with. And I do this in an animal model using mice because mice are are social species, similarly to humans that we're social species. And then, um, so mice like humans form social hierarchies and that's really the defining feature, social feature that guides their behaviors. So I study that. Well, it's quite fascinating. And um, what techniques exactly do you use um, at your lab to investigate that? So we use a combination of techniques, but centered in what we call electrophysiology, which is a method to record the electrical signals from the neurons in the brain. So we're able to, the nice thing about using an animal model is that we can implant electrodes inside the brain and, and record the electrical signals the messages that the neurons are sending each other. So that's one way in which uh, we can see what are the what's happening in the brain, and then to understand if those if those signals are important or not, then we can use another technique called optogenetics, which is a way to manipulate the neural activity with a uh, with high precision. So then we can shut down or activate specific sets of neurons and see if they change the social behaviors. Oh, wonderful. Okay, and so, so you're using a mixture of uh, techniques. It's not just one, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. All right, um, and well, touching on what you first mentioned, um, you, so the brain practically has the capacity to um, help us navigate social spaces, um, even if we're not aware of it. But you know, despite the importance of our social abilities, not much is known really about how our brain controls our social behavior. Um, can we just begin by examining the big picture question here, which is what is really um, spatial navigation and um, how is it that our brain enables us to practically navigate our way through a social space? Yeah, so spatial navigation of of 
comes from people that studied the actual space and how we move in the physical space. So that term comes from people that actually study like uh, the physical space. But then when we say social navigate social navigation, then we're talking about navigating the social group or the people around us. Um, so it's not so much moving in space, but understanding who is who in the group that you're interacting with and the relationships, not just between you and them, but between uh, two different individuals that are not you. Um, so that's what we mean by that. All right. And so, so it's a very complex cognitive process and it does um, involve uh, multiple senses that are you know integrated and processed by a wide network of brain areas and can, can I can we know what exactly which brain areas are involved in this how are we able to navigate throughout a social space so we we do not we don't know too much but for sure from like fMRI studies in humans for example we know that a lot of the frontal cortices are important for example the prefrontal cortex the anterior cingulate cortex is very, uh, and the insular cortex are critical for for identifying the other and considering our social position within a group. Uh, so these frontal cortices are important and also the hippocampus because the hippocampus helps us tra- keep track and learn the hierarchy, basically, based on some studies in humans. Um, we know that the hippocampus is critical for learning hierarchical structures, including social structures. All right, got it. So it's um, most prominently we can look at we can be looking at the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex um, mm-hmm. working together. Is that it? Yes, and then and then there's also some work suggesting that amygdala also plays a role. Um, but it's less clear exactly what the role of the amygdala is. Hmm. All right, so is it a secondary role? It could be, you know, like, so we know that the amygdala is involved in emotion processing. So any, if there is any, like, you know, valence information to a, one theory is perhaps that if there's any valence information, meaning like a positive relationship or a negative relationship to any of the individuals, then the amygdala can help us. Uh, make those connections uh, of of time, emotional information to those social individuals. Oh, all right. So it, it looks like a lot of brain regions are involved here. But oh maybe... yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for keeping it simple for us. So pretty much we can sum it up with um, having the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex form uh, uh, our um, lovely navigational system, and that pretty much allows us to work out how to move around the social space. So remembering um, uh, what's where, where we've been, and where to go. Well, if we were to get more specific um, around your work, um, we can maybe go back to the hippocampus and look at how it enables us to encode social information um, and form social memory. Um, what does your work exactly, um, you know, tell us about that? Can you uh, can you explain it in more in-depth, like give us a more in-depth uh, explanation of it? Yeah, so the hippocampus is, um, there's lots of evidence that the hippocampus has, is important for social memory, for, re- for remembering that you interacted with a given individual. Right. And from my work, we know that the hippocampus is connected to the prefrontal cortex and that that connection between the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex is important for, uh, for 
for, for the prefrontal cortex to be able to map uh, different spaces with different valences. So that experiment that, I, um, that I'm referring to is not social, um, it's not specific to social information, but I hypothesize that given that that connection, given that there's social memory information in the hippocampus, and given that we know that that connection of the hippocampus to the prefrontal cortex is important for the prefrontal cortex to be able to make that um, valence space connection, uh, meaning whether like a space is um, positive or negative, I think that similarly, the hippocampus is um, helping the prefrontal cortex um, attach like social memory information to other, for example, to social rank, because we, my most recent work shows that social rank information lives in the prefrontal cortex. So then perhaps memory and rank can be integrated thanks to that connection from the hippocampus to the prefrontal cortex. But that is something that remains to be tested. So that's one of the uh, experiments that we're working on in my lab right now. Oh, okay. Um, speaking of social rank, I mean, um, this paper was out quite recently and was, uh, for all you listeners out there, it's titled uh, Neural Systems That Facilitate the Representation of Social Rank. I provided the link in the show notes below to it. Um, what, what did the findings exactly reveal about how the uh, brain responds to social status signals? Uh, can you tell us more about that? So that particular study you're referring to is a review article, um, not a... Not a not a, um, we're not doing any experiments in that in that paper, but we're taking together, we're, we're integrating the literature and what we know about how the brain processes social rank information across species. And I can tell you a little bit about what, what we see across the literature. Um, we see that there's two major, across species, there's two major ways in, in which social rank signals signaling happens in the brain. One of them is through social status signals, which don't require previous interactions. And, and so it's think about think about um, the dominance pose or like how body language can signal information of who has more uh, who who has more power potentially. Like the way you stand, the way your face looks can be intimidating, can you know can be uh, suggestive of dominant subordinate relationships. So for those types of, of those are considered social status signals in humans. And animals also have social status signals that sometimes are very obvious, like coloration on their fur and things like that. Or like rodents um, do, they do territorial marking with, um, through their urine and so, so do dogs. And from those urine, uh, from the urine, there are specific proteins that signal their dominance. So these are all types of different social status signals. And are it's sort of like a quick way for the brain to uh, perceive who who is dominant, who's subordinate. And you know that so the idea would be like that would be the quickest way to navigate a social space, even if you don't know those individuals, like based on body language for humans or based on these like features like um, physical features in other animal species that that indicate dominance and then there's uh, specific so 
even of course there are sensorial features and so then they have to be processed by the specific sensory systems but they all converge in in the frontal cortex where it's uh where there's correlative um activity that suggests that um the processing of those social status signals requires uh, prefrontal cortex activity or um, other frontal cortices like the orbital frontal cortex for humans because it's visual information or um, or the ACC anterior cingulate cortex. So then that's one way in which the brain can do it. But then there's another way. So then we don't think it's just that because there are several experiments that suggest that memory can uh, bypass these status signals. Like that if you learn that an, a given individual is dominant to you, even if they're showing a status signal, uh, you're gonna, a status signal that suggests that they're subordinate, um, you're gonna act like they're dominant. So the memory can have more of an impact than the status signals. So that's one. That's a couple of experiments um, in one specific species. But then, so then we we propose that the brain also uses social memory systems to keep track of social rank. So it's not just the status signals okay. that are static, but also using memory uh, to keep track of experience. So wow, that, that's a, that's quite quite a lengthy lengthy review. I mean, so to, to begin with, um, um, you, what you really what you really touched on and you highlighted was that um, dominance behavior is not necessarily expressed by physical competition, right? So there are these status signals that animals um, use to help predict social ranking. And um, what are the most commonly studied animals exactly? Um, yeah, so for for dominance, um, mice are commonly studied, but yes. also there's other really cool systems like fish. There's these fish that um, that when they become dominant, they change color because oh. <laughs> yeah, their hormones like their hormones change after winning a lot of contests after social competition and then they change color. So it's it's a really neat model because you can physically see the changing dominance. Uh, so they're called cichlid fish. Uh, so that's another common uh, model. And then uh, non-human primates as well. So uh, monkeys are used as well and um, other type of fishes. So lots of, lots of variety in what type of species are used for studying dominance actually. Oh, also lizards, which is really cool. There's lizards. these lizards called animal lizards, and they have a spot yeah. by their eye that signals dominance. So that's pretty cool too. Oh wow! Uh, you know, speaking of um, yeah, the eye, what role does the visual thing, like the visual system, really play into this? Um, does it contribute in any way? Yeah. Well, in humans. Uh, you know, humans are uh, a big portion of our brain is visual cortex. Yes. So, uh, vision is one of our most prominent uh, sensory systems, and we rely all of our status signals are visual, basically, like mostly visual. Okay. Um, so, for humans, it's very important, but it all depends on the species, right? Like for rodents, smells are more important than visual cues um, because their vision, their they can 
perceive. Uh, they're obviously not, they're not blind, but their sense of smell is much stronger. So then each species adapts to what they can do, basically. That's beautiful. So yeah, it, it goes back to the dominant um, practical sense as well, right? Yeah, exactly. What's their dominant sense? And then that's what's going to be used to uh, perceive dominance. All right. I mean, at the beginning of the episode, we we kind of mentioned how the hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex, uh, play a huge role in allowing us to navigate throughout the social space. Um, with the social rank, what about the amygdala? Well, what does it do, really? So there's one study showing that, so we know lots of, lots of research shows that the amygdala um, amygdala signals positive or negative valence information. So whether a stimulus is good or bad for you. And then a recent study showed that um, those same cells that signal valence also stick, seem to signal the social rank of the animals in the same group as the subject. So suggesting that perhaps in them, the amygdala helps us integrate uh, valence information with rank, you know, like uh, whether the animal is dominant or subordinate to you. Um, so, so that makes sense. So there's one study showing that. Uh, what we don't know, however, is what happens if, if you turn off these cells? Can the animals still perceive social rank? So that's sort of like the, that's what we don't know yet. So um, I guess the, the, that just gives plenty of room for future research to um, exactly yeah dive yeah into. absolutely yeah I mean yeah it looks it looks like quite quite a quite a a, <laughs> a wide space to you know dive into um, I'm 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 trying to get as specific as possible here and can I ask are there neural circuits that guide social hierarchy in in, in general if you so are there certain pathways. Um, that guide social hierarchy and social ranking? Yes, yes. So there's a couple of studies, including my own work. So my work shows that the the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the lateral hypothalamus okay. drives social dominance. So if you stimulate that connection, animals that are subordinate are gonna act dominant in the social competition. They're gonna be able to like win more often. And then there's another study uh, also in mice, because these are like the animal models in which we can manipulate specific circuits pretty easily, that showing that the the projection from the thalamus, like a specific nucleus of the thalamus called the medial dorsal thalamus, yes. to the prefrontal cortex is also very linked to dominance. And as an animal wins social competitions, which leads to dominance, right? Like, so what is dominance? It's the re- repeatedly winning, consistently winning in, in points of social conflict. So as the winning happens, the plas- there's plasticity in this pathway okay. uh, that strengthens the connection of these mediodorsal thalamic nucleus to the prefrontal cortex. And it facilitates the dominance behavior. So it's sort of like you win a lot, you have plasticity in this pathway, and that helps you keep winning. And the cool thing about this study was that they they stimulated that pathway and show that that was sufficient to make animals dominant. So naturally, as you win, plasticity happens in the pathway, but then you can 
inter you can just cross the plasticity with stimulation and then you see that the animals become dominant so uh, those currently those are the the two circuits that are linked to dominance uh, connected to the prefrontal cortex the medial dorsal thalamic input to the pfc and the pfc connection to the lateral hypothalamus Wonderful, and uh, I can see that there's a lot, a little Pavlovian conditioning going on here. The more you, <laughs> the more you reward. The, yeah, I see. <laughs> um, well, th- that's quite fascinating. I mean, um, uh, Dr. Pereira, you've you've dived into a wide range of topics with me here, and I appreciate it so much. And I just wanted to, to ask, lastly, like, uh, you know, what psychiatric and neurological diseases kind of affect our, our ability to navigate social sp- uh, spaces? Uh, because here we're just talking about, you know, a healthy um, mm-hmm. um, individual or um, animal. But what happens when someone's suffering from a disorder? How are they able to? So many disorders affect our social abilities, especially our ability to navigate um, our social spaces. The, the most common one that almost everyone knows about is autism spectrum disorders, in which people have individuals with the disorder have problems. Um, difficulties making social decisions and understanding what the other person's thinking and how to navigate their social spaces. Uh, especially any social hierarchies are difficult as well uh, to navigate. Uh, but it's not the only one. Also, other psychiatric disorders like um, uh, depression affect social motivation and so do so does social anxiety because then the the um, social other people are becoming um, anxiety provoking for that person and very surprisingly as well um, a neurological Alzheimer's actually ends up disrupting uh, people's social behavior once it's um, once the person has uh, even before they have memory problems they start having social behavior changes uh, which is really interesting um, and completely not understood so there's a lot of to you know, to conclude, there's a lot of psychiatric <laughs> and neurological disorders that affect our social abilities. Yeah, I, th- I think that demands an episode on its own. Uh, <laughs> are there are there currently any treatments for you know uh, the dysfunction accompany- accompanying these uh, clinical disorders? Only therapy, basically, like um, behavioral therapy, is the only treatment for these social behavioral changes. So my hope is that. The more we understand the social brain and how things happen in the healthy brain, the more likely we're going to be able to develop some intervention therapies that are specifically targeting parts of the brain that are responsible for helping generate those behaviors such that, you know, I I hope that that's the future, that we figure out the basic side of it and that engineers figure out how we like target these brain regions in humans. So practically, you just gave out room for future research <laughs> to kind of pick on the topic. And um, finally, before we end this episode, I just um, I wanted to ask. So you know, we see the you mentioned engineers here. We see that neuroscience is the nexus of many um, topics, not just medicine. So um, we've got um, education, the justice system, and um, so where where exactly, Doctor, do you see the future of this field heading towards? Um, as we explore the unknown? Well, I certainly see more convergence with computer science and artificial intelligence and neuroscience because the field of artificial intelligence is being, it tries to inspire them, uh, 
new technologies based on what we know about the brain. Okay. And then at the same time, um, artificial intelligence is useful for us to understand our data better. So I am hopeful that there'll be more and more connections between neuroscience and computer science, specifically artificial intelligence, such that we can accelerate the knowledge of the brain by using artificial neural networks uh, to both to simulate the brain, but also to help us analyze our data. So both the data science component, but also to understand fundamental things about the brain. Wonderful. I hope I hope your lab is uh, is uh, is working on incorporating them and maybe meeting at the intersection of neuroscience and AI. <laughs> yeah, we are. We actually are. Yes. Yeah, so that's. That's, That's why I, I see this in the future. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Dr. Nancy, for your time. It's, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. I'm very grateful for being able to have you here on my show. Honestly, that was just tremendous. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. <laughs> Anytime. Um, for all you listeners out there, I've provided a link to Dr. Padilla Coriano's discussed publications right down in the show notes. And if you want to support the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify. Leave us a comment if you have any feedback for us. And on Apple, you can also leave a review um, for us to improve the podcast experience for you. Uh, we'll see you on the next episode next Monday. Thank you for listening. And more importantly, thank you for your interest in science. <laughs>